With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. last time, so this time we get to talk more about the afterlife and more about death and dying. Yes, it's going uh, to be so much fun because I know we've got tonight and we've got um, Thursday night also. Thursday night also. Yes. <laughs> My calendar's downstairs, so <laughs> I'm yes. taking taking your word for that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because uh, we, we're going to do, uh, actually tonight we're going to be talking about the near-death experiences from uh, the big book of near-death experiences that I just received from you. Oh, okay, wonderful. we're not talking about afterlife? That'll be, um, unless you want to talk about that now, and then we'll talk about uh, near-death on Thursday. 
yeah, that would be good because I don't have my near-death books up here. Okay. okay. <laughs> With me, I have the other kind of books. Okay. That's good. That'll be, that'll work too. Actually, we can do anything. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll just play it by ear then. But that's <laughs> sure. um, so yeah. It's, I've had a lot of people want to know about near-death experiences and, of course, uh, the afterlife. And I'm a psychic medium. Oh, you are. Yes. I so. did not know that. So a lot of people, you know, come over and get information from spirits who crossed over, and people still are kind of wondering. It's like, well, what's it like there? Maybe you can give us some insight from what, through your research, what it's like on the other side. Well, th- that's the big, big question, <laughs> and it depends on your, on literally your point of view. Now, I, I'm not saying that to be flippant. Rather, I'm saying that to really focus on the individual near-death experiencer that is crossing over. I'm also focusing on after-death communications, people who have died and then come back to contact their families in some manner or contact uh, people they know in some manner. So when we focus on those particular points of view, um, then then we need to kind of be really broad here when we're looking at, okay, what is the afterlife? Uh, If you're focusing on just a few people's version, um, versions that might be more personal, then you're going to talk about layers of the afterlife that will be similar to the earth plane. If you're going to take a broader view, which is what I do as a researcher of near-death states, and I'm looking at thousands and thousands of cases, then I'm seeing a pattern emerge that's a little different. So, you know, it, it depends upon do you want to focus on the more personal that's closer to the earth plane, or do you want to focus on levels beyond that? It's almost as if the other side is it's almost as if it were an, uh, a layer cake. That is to say, all these different layers. And uh, in my, you know, what is it, 30 decades plus research, and all these thousands of people I've had sessions with or know about or followed up or studied, um, it's as if there are 12 heavens and 12 hells. You know, I can't say for sure that there are, but it it seems to me like that's what I counted. And and that what separates these different levels is is a rate of vibration. So each level is a different vibration than the other. Uh, Those uh, of the more hellish or unpleasant or distressing levels it's like they're separated by denser and slower energy, the different levels are. And if you're going to those areas that are more beautiful and more pleasing and more loving, then those also are separated by energy, higher forms of energy. It's like it's like if you're going up the scale, so to speak, then you, then things seem to be a little bit more rapid as far as the vibration is concerned. If you're going down the scale, so to speak, then things seem to get slower and more dense. Um, when we're talking about heaven and hell, especially in near-death cases, one of the things that seems so important is that that 
if you're looking again at at the larger number of cases, if you're looking for patterns, one of the things you find that I think is so important is that there's no top and no bottom. In other words, it's an open-ended system. So nobody goes to hell and or whatever we wa- might want to call hell and suffers and is punished and is in pain forever. That does not seem to exist at all. That idea, that place, that level just doesn't uh, doesn't seem to exist at all. And the same with heaven. Nobody exists on a cloud playing a harp forever. Um, it's like we can always grow, we can always change, we can always move, and indeed we do move. And and that on some level we do have choices. And those choices, of course, depend on how sincere they are. Because, you know, we might think, well, okay, I choose to get out of here. But if you're not sincere, if you don't really mean it, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> you're going to be stuck there. <laughs> You know, and it's the same way with the upper levels. Um, It's like you can rise higher and higher and higher, but eventually you leave all forms of shape and size and matter. You You leave all types of incarnations and anything that we can refer to in a way that we're familiar with. In other words, you you go into the abstracts and then you go beyond the abstracts and who knows where you go beyond that. You know, we can, our, our, our best psychics and our best mediums can certainly offer ideas, but, you know, we don't have a good sense of what that patterning is. It's like when you get beyond the 11th and the 12th level going up, uh, that is to say, to the finer vibrations, then you leave behind all shapes and forms. There just isn't any. Um, you're getting into levels of truth and levels of beingness and levels of, of um, well, you know, I hesitate to even call, to name them because, you know, it's like it's like we're stuck, you know. What word do you use? when you're at a level where nothing can compare with it. Nothing on the earth plane, nothing in your dreams, nothing on television, nothing in the movies. Um, we, we just don't have a way to really talk about that. So when we're talking about the afterlife, afterlife then, we're talking about wherever that person is plugging in. That's why I said point of view. It depends upon where they're plugging in. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. It's hard to because um, I've gone and I've visited the other side, and it's kind of hard to find a word to describe it. Well, yeah. That that's why I call it a layer cake. Yes. Uh, that's the best I can do. Um, it's like twelve heavens, twelve hells. <laughs> There's a bunch of that. And yeah. it's interesting though that we don't actually, you know, um. The concept of you either go to one place or the other and you stay there for eternity. No, there isn't any such thing as that. It doesn't seem to exist at all. And and that's one of the things that I've noticed with all kinds of cases, United States, China, or Israel, Kenya, 
Russia, it doesn't seem to matter where you are. It doesn't seem to make any difference whatever what your belief system is, whether you're an agnostic or a Catholic or an atheist or a pagan or you know, a, a witch. It doesn't matter. It doesn't seem to make any bit of difference. Uh, these levels exist as if they were, oh, I'm going I'm to kind of play with words here, as if they were some kind of array um, that exists because of how energy forms and moves. It seems to be somewhat based on mass mind and our thought forms built up over time, but even that doesn't explain it. Even that can't give it meaning, this array on the other side. Um, you know, it, it just, you know, how do you explain that kind of thing? Well, you really can't explain it. There's no words to, to describe that, um, to describe it at all. Well, you know, I, I think we owe it to each other to try. <laughs> And then after we've tried our best, then we just kind of flub around with our tongue in our mouth and say, well, you know, I really can't give it a word. <laughs> yeah, and sooner or later, I mean, people, when people read your books, and, you know, they can get an understanding of what it's like. Well, I, ho- I hope so, and especially if they read the book, We Live Forever. Which the is a real truth book. about death. Did you read that? Oh yes, I managed. I, it took me just a whole day. That's all I did was just read it. Oh, just sat there. I was like, okay, I've got to read this and read the whole thing, and it is amazing. Did it kind of blow your cookies? <laughs> yeah, and actually gave me some confirmations of things um, that I have been through. You know, dealing with um, you know people dying close to me and all. And um, on one part is how people seem to know when they're going to when they're going to die. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I got in, into that kind of investigation long before I ever died. And that was, you know, I'm a cop's kid. I was raised in a police station. So I've always been around the edge of death or the edge of of trauma or the edge of violence. I mean, I've just always been there at the edge. Yeah. You know, I was one of the, and it seems like you were prepared from uh, from a child to be an investigator. You know, I was. <laughs> it was like you were just predestined to do this work. I know, I know. Yeah, I didn't even, I didn't even know that. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I'm one of these people. I never look back, and and so I never bothered to notice my own patterns. I'm just so busy looking at everybody else's. And when I wrote Coming Back to Life, uh, my very first major book, Chapter Two is a brief version, at least, of my own three deaths and in order to write that book I really had to look at myself and and go back in time and when I did that I thought oh my goodness <laughs> I really had a different kind of life you don't realize that until you look back at everything yeah yeah I mean what nine-year-old kid is raised by a policeman who I I truly feel um, wanted to raise the world's most perfect witness. You know, he had this way of raising me, like like 
um, we had the five and, and dime stores then. Uh, yeah, I remember and, uh, exactly you know, Newberry ten, and Woolworth. And <laughs> yeah, Woolworth and and Newberries and these kind of stores, you know. And and in those days, when I was young, they did not stack shelves. Everything was at eye level. It was covered with glass. So you'd walk into this five and five and dime store, and you know, I'd be agog at all the glitter like any other kid because there it is, all my eye level, you know, covered with glass. And, you know, I'm looking at all the the necklaces and the jewelry and the combs, and my it's always the same M.O. Dad would come up, grab me by the shoulders, twirl me around, and say, all right, now, describe that woman that just went by. And we'd have this checklist. You know, what was the color of her hair? Does she have a part? What's the color of her eyes? Is she wearing glasses? Does she have anything around her neck? Describe her clothes. Is there a belt? Is there a watch? Describe her shoes. Describe her socks. Is she wearing a handbag or carrying a handbag and so forth and so on? I mean, there would just be this gigantic checklist. Or or we'd be crossing Maine and Shoshone. This is in Twin Falls, Idaho. This is where I was raised. And we'd get safely to the other side, and Dad would grab me by the shoulders and twirl me around, and eyeball to eyeball, and you know, describe that man that just went by. And and I never knew when he was going to do it, never. So often, you know, it, it was an off and on kind of thing, and it went off and on for three years. And I just, I never knew. Now he later on, when he was interviewed by a reporter. Um, for the Times News in Twin Falls, Idaho, he ta- it was a woman. He told her that he he was just playing a game. Well, it wasn't a game to me. <laughs> yeah. I took it very seriously. Well, I'd have five fathers and two mothers, and he was the only guy who ever adopted me. And so when I first met him, when I first knew him, he scared me speechless. And it took me a number of years to to sort of welcome him into my life and accept the man. And when I did, it's just head over heels in love with him. I mean, he's a saint. Passed away this year. And, I, oh, gee. I, I just feel so privileged to have had that man in my life and to be able to call him father or dad and to have had the teaching that he gave. I mean, he was just an exquisite extraordinary man he was one of these very sensitive people that knew the mountains and and knew the animals and and knew the soil and and knew the weather i mean he just he was he was yes he was a policeman but he was also a man of nature and a man of the mountains and he just knew these things and he passed those on to me and and taught that to me but you know when i was in in the first grade well before the first grade was pearl harbor so you know all this death death everywhere people were crying everywhere we had uh air raid drills and the, and the drill sergeants would come to your home you had a light on you were fined um you know you had to flatten all the cans and that you you know your food cans and said you had to wash them and flatten them, take them to a central point for the war effort. There was so much rationing, uh, the victory gardens and all this kind of thing. So that's the world I was raised in: is all these air raid drills, uh, neighbors that were dying or died in the war effort, 
I had to walk maybe about five blocks to school, but they were big, long blocks, like New York City blocks, big, long blocks. And uh, in those days, if someone in your family died in the war effort, you were given a very large gold star, and you put that in your, your living room window. And most of the homes that I um, that I walked along on Shoshone to get to get to my school, my grade school, first grade, had gold at least one gold star in the window. And this one particular morning, this one house had six new gold stars in the window overnight. And I just stood there and sobbed. You know, I, I can't remember one single morning in the first grade when I didn't have to quiet my 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 tears and and stop my shutters just to walk in the door of my classroom so that's the kind of you know you 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 go to the the Saturday movie matinee in the morning which was a big deal then we didn't have TV so we had the big matinee at the movie house and by the way it only cost about 9 or 11 cents to get in <laughs> unlike now it costs an arm and a leg sometimes yeah, isn't that something? And uh, before they'd play the kids' stuff, you always had the newsreels. So I grew up with Roy Rogers and Hitler, you know, and the Goose Steppers every Saturday morning. You know, the SS troops and their Goose Steps and Hitler and Heil Hitler and all that stuff. And then the, the next image would be Roy Rogers or Sunset Carson or, you know, they get on with the show. So that was the way I was raised, which is an odd way to grow up, but a lot of people did then. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I heard uh, a lot of the different stories too, because my grandparents were born in the 1890s. Oh, they would have lots of stories uh, lots, to tell. Lots of stories. Oh, uh, of all those wars and the depression, my goodness. So yeah, so it definitely prepared you then for um, for the type of work you've been doing for uh, how long have you been doing this now? Over 30 years. Well, if you're just looking at my near-death work, I've been doing that since 1978. So it's it's a little on the plus side of 30 years. If you want to look at my research of spiritual transformations and altered states of consciousness, then you're going to go back to the 60s. I began at about 1965. If you're going to look at all the different aspects of existence on the earth plane and how we behave, how these these different energies work, then you're literally almost going to go back to my birth. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> one of these people. I swear I was born analyzing my birth. You know, <laughs> I was just one of those. <laughs> And I always had to know why. You know, I, I did my first double-blind study with a control group at the age of five. Yeah, I know. I was reading <laughs> that in your book. That's, that is interesting. I've I got a kick out of that part, too. It's like, oh, starting at an early age, automatically knew what she wanted to do. <laughs> well, I, I can't say that I knew what I wanted to do. I can't say that at all. But I can say that I knew how I wanted to do it. And how I wanted to do it was I always wanted to find my own truth myself. And that's how. 
not what. I never knew what. Never had any idea what. But I knew how. I knew that I had to find truth. And not only did I have to find it, but I had to find out how it worked. And I had to find out how it worked for all different kinds of people under all different kinds of situations. And that's what drove me. And then when I died, you know, that drove me even more. So uh, when you, uh, what did you experience when you had your near-death experience? Oh, well, we're going to be on. <laughs> we're going to be on for hours. Uh, because remember, I had three. I died three times in three months. So, you know, I look back at that and I call it the heavenly sledgehammer effect. <laughs> Uh, did you at any one at any point decide? Oh, well, I don't want to leave here. I want to stay. No, I didn't. Uh, a lot of people do, uh, but I was not one of them. My, my first one was was relatively fast. It was one of these initial experiences, so it only had just a few elements to it. My second one, two days later, was ve- was very long and very complex had lots and lots of different elements to it. My third one was the one that really um, impacted me the most and um, really is responsible for me having become a researcher of near-death states. Um, In that particular one... um, Ah, I, I, I just, I'm, I'm sort of um, wondering here how much to say. L- let me say that I reached the realm of all knowing. Now that's fairly common. There's a lot of near-death experiencers that reach that level. That's a level where you, it, it, all things are revealed to you. You know, you find out why Aunt Tilly lost her leg, why Uncle George uh, is bald. You know, I mean, you you find out the whys of things, um, uh, the results and the whys and the wherefores and all of that kind of thing. And after that happened, then I was able to witness what I believe to be the center point of creation and how it worked. I, I was literally—I believe I was literally there at the center point, watching creation as it occurred, creation and consciousness. And I wrote a book about it called Future Memory. Of course, it's not just about my experience. No, none of my books are. Um, that's not the way I do things. I'm always looking at the larger picture. Uh, but um, after that happened, then a voice spoke. And I'd been a meditator for about a decade before I died, and, you know, I'd taught meditation, and I was very active with altered states of consciousness and ghosts and all this kind of thing back in the 60s. And so I was very familiar with guides and guardians and angel voices and nature spirits and all this kind of thing. Um, this voice wasn't like that, John. It was, um, yeah, it was one of those, 
one of those one voices of, like, you know, what do, what do you say? I, I called it the voice like none other because that's, you know, it it was like the universe thundered. It's like all of the universe thundered. It, it's, you know, how do you describe it? The voices came from everywhere. Yeah, but it it was even above and beyond that. It's just like that. The voice owned the universe, um, and I believed it to be of God. And that voice said, and I, and I quote: "Test revelation. You are to do the research. One book for each death." It, book number one was not named. Books two and three were named. I was told what was to be in each book, but not how long it would take me to do it. Um, and, you know, it was just made very clear to me that this is what I was to do when I came back, was to do this research. And so when I, when I was, you know, I came back infused with this, and then when I was reasonably <laughs> human again... <laughs> Um, because, you know, most people seem to forget that most near-death experiences come from trauma or violence. So you've got a body to rebuild. And it took me about a year to do that, and then I began my research. And uh, I've been researching it for years before Ken Ring discovered me, and he was so surprised and so shocked that I was doing my own independent research And I had never heard of Raymond Moody or his book or anybody else. I was doing what I was told to do by the voice like none other. And I used the term near-death experience because I had met Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She was late for her plane to Europe at O'Hara Airport. That's where I met her. And we both sat down on a little bench and talked like a couple of little schoolgirls for over an hour. Yeah, what seemed like forever. Yeah, <laughs> and I told her about my experiences, and she was the one who said I was a near-death survivor. Now, she never said experiencer. She said survivor, and she was the one who told me about the pattern of the near-death experience, what it was, and that I my experiences were genuine, and that is, you know, that's validation. You know, that was so helpful. Um, but to tell you the truth, it created more questions than it gave answers, and it was after that that I began my work. Yeah, I was uh, reading through there and um, how you know you see that people um, have an idea when they're going to when they're going to go. Yeah, yeah. This is what I found when um, my then husband he 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 was with me also. He was he. Uh, was an ag pilot, and we were very curious that uh, so many of our friends died, but yet when you'd go and you'd talk with the loved ones afterward to comfort them, they would always talk about their loved one who had died and that loved one knowing that they were going to die, even though they never spoke about it, they acted as if they knew. And I had been doing this kind of research for many, many years, of course, as a cop's daughter, uh, saw so many things and talked to people and listened to people. And and I kept noticing, my goodness, you know, um, here we have an accident. 
and yet these people behave as if they knew already knew. You know, th- that one case I was brought in on of those two high school girls? Yes. Yeah, that that was a stunner. That was a stunner. Um it was just maybe a month, maybe weeks before the end of of the school year when they were would actually graduate. So it was really close to graduation day. And they were were they were friends and they were very popular. And they were in this car, of course, one was driving, one was just sitting there on the on the front seat. And they got to this intersection and it seemed like, you know, everything was everything was kosher, everything was fine. They began to pull out in the serv- in the, in the in the intersection and they got slammed head on by this guy, uh, who was I can't remember if he was drunk or just driving recklessly, but he, it, 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 you know, it was just head on, killed them both instantly, and it was a huge, huge funeral, you know, you can imagine the emotions and the media coverage and the moms and the dads and everybody else and school and the teachers, I mean, thousands yeah, of people like came whole, out. Yeah, oh, came yeah. Out Oh, it's a huge funeral, and and just parents just grief stricken. Everybody was grief stricken, and then a year later, both both of the moms, independently of each other and without knowing each other, because they 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 did not know before the daughters were killed. It was the daughters who were friends, not the parents. And then after the funeral, they didn't talk to each other again. So the, they didn't even see each other again. So these two moms, independent of each other, started going to a friend of mine who was an astrologer, Johnny Lister. Used to be the astrologer up at Sun Valley, Sun Valley, Idaho, you know, the famous place where all the movie stars go and all this kind of stuff. Well, that was Johnny Lister. He was very, very good at the piano, uh, played the piano, and then, then became a professional astrologer. Well, he moved down to Boise, Idaho, where I was, uh, where I was living, and... Um, these people came up from Twin Falls to uh, to talk to Johnny, and each one told a similar story. Um, the, the, the mother that was the most um, disturbed about her daughter dying, and, and this particular daughter, I, I think almost a year before she died, uh, kept having dreams that she was going to die. Or she'd have a feeling that she was going to die. And she began to openly talk about it. And it, it, it just drove her parents nuts. So they took her to a psychiatrist. You know, surely there's something wrong with our daughter. And he did all kinds of tests, you know, met with her and had all these sessions with her. And, and she was fine. He couldn't find anything wrong with her. And the parents kept ex- insisting that she must be mentally ill, so he was going to give her some drugs. Um, I don't remember if he actually ever gave her any drugs to get her out of this state she was in. The other daughter, I don't recall that she uh, had this kind of openness about death, I'm maybe a little bit, but not not like the one. The, the one was just almost obsessed with the fact that she was soon going to die. She knew she was. She was going to die about the time that she would graduate from high school, and she just knew. 
um, so um, th- this this one mother who was the most disturbed went to the went to Johnny Lister and and said that her daughter had appeared to her in in a dream and she said it was it was just so so real um it it was as if it wasn't a dream it was as if her daughter had manifested in her bedroom and her mother had come up uh, and the daughter had come up to the mother and said something to the effect of i want you to know why this happened i want you to know that that i made a pact before i was born i made a pact with this other girl and and i promised her that I would be with her when she died because she had never had a violent death before, and I had. So I knew how to handle them, but she didn't. So I promised her that I would go through that death with her so I could help her. And I want you to know that was the only reason I was ever born. That was why I lived, and that is why I died. And I want you to know it has nothing to do with you or the way you raised me. It has nothing to do with dying before my time. I died when I was supposed to die. And I did what I was supposed to do. And this was my purpose. And this was my only purpose in this lifetime. And, of course, that rattled the mother, you can imagine. Yeah, she was um, like, oh, my gosh, how did she, you know, why would she do that? Yeah, really. And so she, instead of going to her handy-dandy psychiatrist, she went to Johnny Lister, the astrologer. And and interestingly enough, not too long after that, the, the other mother went to Johnny. And with a similar story that her daughter seemingly manifested before her and, 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 and assured her that she was supposed to die in that accident, that that was something she was supposed to go through, that she needed to do that as part of her growth as a soul, that she had never died violently before, and she needed to experience that. And she wanted her mother to know how much she loved her, and that everything was fine, and that she was fine, and that she hoped her mother would soon be fine as well. So both of the mothers told their husbands, and um, and they also told their husbands that they had gone to see Johnny Lister. So Johnny called me on the phone. He says, my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, what am I going to do with these two women? I said, Johnny, get a hold of the psychiatrist. Get a hold of a psychiatrist that you know or maybe that the mothers know. And talk to the psychiatrist. And tell the psychiatrist everything that you can about the accidents, about these two women, and have the psychiatrist bring in both couples and have the psychiatrist listen to the stories where everybody hears everybody else and then have the psychiatrist deal with it. And so that's what Johnny did. He got a hold of both mothers, said, come with, and, and got a hold of a psychiatrist who'd do it, and said, you know, come with your, your husbands and go visit this psychiatrist. They both did, both couples, 
and and told their stories in front of each other because that's the first time the other would have heard it. And and uh, with the psychiatrist's help, there was an incredible, incredible healing that occurred. It was just so loving and so deep and so wonderful. It is it is uh, releasing. Um, when you can go ahead and do it. I don't know if I was call it, you know, it wasn't a near-death experience, and I don't feel it was an out-of-body experience. But I had um, an uncle living with me, and I was mm, 10, 11 years old, and he died of lung cancer. Mm. And um, we were, he was with us. We were take, I was helping take care of him for a few years. And he died. I was about 12 when he finally died. And um, I had a woman who was next-door neighbor. She was a psychic. And she told me, she said, well, he's going to come to you and want to take care of you. She said, I'm not going to tell you anything else. Just tell him you want to just go there to visit. And sure enough, sometime later on, he came over and, and wanted to, he said, I want to come over and take care of you because you took care of me. And I just went Now, he's appearing in spirit, right? Yes, as I okay. went to sleep. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I, was, I just closed my eyes. So I wasn't quite asleep yet, but I just saw him as clear as day. Mm-hmm. And I so I just want to go there for a visit then, make sure you're okay, because that's fine, you can do that. And all the next thing I know, we're in this beautiful place. And there was just no words to describe it. But, um, you know, I learned some wonderful information being there, and met some people. Um, was told that I couldn't see what their faces looked like, because I was just a visitor. And then I ended up walking into a big building with, some, with um, I guess, one of my guides. And but afterwards it was just such a relief because at that time there was still mourning, you know, with him dying and all. Yeah. But just having that connection with him, and then talking to the psychic, you know, when she all of a sudden she goes, "Oh, he came to you last night." She goes, "And I'm not going to." She goes, "I'll tell you now what you saw, just so you'll know it was real." And she described everything to a T. Wow. And I just felt. I remember when I woke up that morning, it was just the most relaxing and peaceful night's sleep I'd ever had in my life. And it was just so releasing. Yeah. And it was just so healing to, to you know, talk to somebody else and realize, it was like, oh, okay, well, you know, everything's so much better now. Well, that's what's important is, it is uh, when you're validated. You know. And, and it, it is interesting, and that's why, it's, it, you know, I see how it's hard to describe uh, what the other side is like, and and even if you do, you're really not describing what the other side is like. You're describing either the overall picture of all the different levels, or you are describing one particular level, or you're describing the shadowlands, or you're des- describing the in between, or you're describing beyond the levels. You know, I mean. Even if you try to describe what it's like, you really can't describe what it's like because it's so vast and there's so many different parts of it that you really can't describe what it's like. Yeah, and it's it's just the way I describe uh, to a lot of people. I mean, I can give a physical description, but it's just so much love there. At the area that I was at, the particular level that you were at. Yeah, at the Uh particular level that I was at, it was just so much love. And just knowing that, it was just such a release. Yeah, you know, love and it. And I was able to go ahead and let my mom know what I had seen, and it even helped her. 
Now, the, the, uh, what you saw, was that similar to the Earth plane? Um, yeah, it was, it was real similar. I mean, I saw green fields, blue, it looked like blue sky and uh, buildings. But I was, okay. it was, they weren't really solid. I was able to almost like see through them, too. Hmm, okay. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, so you were a little bit higher. You were still seeing forms and shapes and um, structures that were similar to the earth plane, but yet they were becoming very, um, uh, uh, almost as if they were uh, filmy or or just spirit or breath. Yeah, it was it was rather interesting, uh, to say the least, on there. Um, I need to take one short little break. Okay. Gonna, uh, play just a little bit of uh, relaxing music. I had something just come up real quick. And we'll be right back in just a moment. Like uh, rain, like uh, rays of light, 
Well, that's what the child experiencers say. I haven't heard an adult say that yet, but the, the children, especially if they're quite young, will talk about prayer beams. And I have a picture of one here at home, but I can't show you on the radio. <laughs> Sorry. <That's okay. laughs> um, but the children describe these prayer beams as a beam of light that arcs over from the one who's saying the prayer to where the prayer is intended to go, whether it's going to a city, a place, a person, an animal, whatever, that beam will go from the person who sends it clear over to the person who receives it, irrespective of distance. So distance doesn't matter. And the children can see these during their near-death experiences or when they're out of body. They can see these very clearly. And I have two different descriptions of them. Uh, one group or a bunch of kids describe these prayer beams as this very brilliant white light. It might have gold tinges to it, but it's so brilliant and so bright that it's almost false to call it white. The other ones say that um, it's like rainbows. It's like rainbow light, only only instead of being like a horizontal rainbow bridge it's rainbow bands so the color is vertical instead of horizontal so you've got these rainbow bands in this in this prayer beam and often these prayer beams will have that incredible uh bright light at the beginning of the band and sometimes is at the end but certainly at the beginning and and so these these incredible beams of light just goes streaking out. I asked one little boy, I said, <laughs> what's it like if one of these touch you or hits you? And he says, oh, he started laughing. He says, oh, it's, it's, it's so warm and it tickles all over. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cute. But, you know, you get that very real sense with children that prayer is 100% real. That it's not words you're speaking. It's not even the feeling behind those words. But rather it is a substance. It is a, a physical substance in the sense that it is very real at the vibration that, that it holds and that it works or functions or moves in physicality or in our earth world in a very specific way. So again, we're not talking about something, we're not talking magic, we're not talking about something anybody made up. We're talking about something that follows uh, the law, the laws of the earth plane, that it is very physical in its own way, even though we can't see it. Well, we can't see love either, but we know love exists. Uh, but if you're out of your body or if you're in these incredibly awakening or enlightened states, you can see these prayer beams. And uh, I, I just thought it was wonderful that that um, that these children can describe things like that and, and it all of a sudden just starts clicking for everybody. You know, it's like, well, I'm not a child, hardly, but... This makes sense to me because I can feel that energy. I can feel the energy of the prayer. Yes, I guess you know, maybe because um, 
you know, children are so innocent. And yeah. as adults, <laughs> we have, we've had so many blockages put up. And maybe that has um, interfered why we can't see the prayer rays and the prayer, be- uh, prayer beams when, you know, we have a near-death experience. Well, it could be. Yeah, it, you it never could know. Be. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of things that the universe isn't ready to reveal all secrets yet. No, <laughs> no, the universe does not, although we get closer and, go- and closer. Um, you know, we're 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 doing a good job in finding out more and more, but it seems like the more you find out, the more you realize that you have yet to find out. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, the more it, you know, the the more you realize you have yet to know. <laughs> it's like we haven't even begun to even touch the surface on it all. Oh, isn't that the truth? Yeah. Isn't that the I truth? I know. Um, when my mom passed away, and you know, when I was reading about people know that they're going to go ahead of time. Now, she was sick, and she told me on a Monday, she's like, I'm, I'm, I want to go. I'm not living like this anymore. And it's like, you know, I talked to a friend of mine who worked at hospice, so I made peace with her on a Tuesday. I said, okay, just let me know what you want me to do. And the doctor's like, you know, it could take weeks. You know, you never know. And all of a sudden, the minute I made, you know, she made all the arrangements with me, what she wanted done, all of a sudden she wasn't there anymore, mentally-wise. Mm-hmm. She was totally out of it for the whole week. And this was on a Tuesday. I made peace with it. On a Friday morning, we had had um, hospice getting ready to go in and help to, uh, you know, make her more comfortable because she was just totally just losing her mind. And um, she was seeing people that weren't around for the whole week. And on a Friday morning, she took a turn for the worse. So I was there with her. And it was interesting, you know, when I was reading that, how people know ahead of time. And, and the was, visitors, yes. the visitors come, yes. you know. All, all, all through the time. And even, she even at one point had the nurses, had to call me up. Um, this was like on that Wednesday. And they said, you know, you need to get over here. It's like, why? It's like, you know, your mother's, you know, imagining you in the hallway and was thinking that I was, that somebody had shot me. And even when I went there, she knew who I was, but she's like, you're lying to me. I said, no, I'm not. You know, but she was still seeing people that weren't even there. Mm-hmm. And um, even when she took the turn for the worse, you know, I stayed with her. She wanted me to go ahead and, and uh, made me promise that she wouldn't be alone. And I said no, and I'd read her, um, you know, her Bible to her. And uh, we all, she also had a book she wanted to read was Embraced by the Light. Oh, yeah, Betty Eady's book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she heard about that, and so I was reading that to her. And I remember at one point she was trying to grab for something. And I'm like, what are you grabbing for? And I hadn't, you know, I'd heard about things like that. But I, at that point there, I just wasn't thinking straight. So she's like, well, I'm reaching for my sunglasses because the sun is hurting my eyes. So I said, okay. So I said, well, yeah, I said, I'll help you put your sunglasses on. And I made off that we were putting on sunglasses. She goes, oh, that feels so much better because the light's going away now. Oh. And that's when it clicked. That yeah. she was starting to see the light. Yeah. And but even then, during um for the next 24 hours, she died that following um that Saturday morning, and I was with her, and she was still reaching for things and saying that there were people there, and just mumbling. A lot of well, it I can understand what she was saying because she um she spoke French uh, when she was younger, uh-huh. and she'd actually reverted back to just speaking mostly French, yeah. and I'm like, 
Um, yeah, she'll, she'll go back to the primary language. Yeah, and I kept reminding her, I said, I can't understand what you're saying, and she'd start speaking English and go right back to French again. Yeah, yeah. So I know, you know, had no idea who she was talking to, but um, it was rather interesting. And, and then being there when she took um, her last breath and how calming it was. Yeah. I, I hope that all of the listeners... Um, make note here that when the visitors come that's typical that's normal that's to be expected this is not hallucinations they really see otherworldly beings they really do get visitors from the other side very often loved ones or friends that have died and gone on before will come back that includes animals that includes pets uh, they get um, any number of kind of visitors, and these are very, very real. Now, to understand their languaging, people, when they are dying, speak symbolic speech. To understand what they are telling you, and they, and they will tell you exactly what's going on. But you have to understand the language they use. Get the book, Final Gifts. It's by Maggie Callanan and Patricia Kelly. They're both hospice nurses, and they had worked in hospice for decades, and they caught on to the language. So read the book, Final Gifts, and that will teach you the language and and help you to catch on as to what these um, what the dying are saying. And I hope if any nurse or hospice worker is listening or any healthcare provider is listening, they will also get that book, Final Gifts. Maggie Callanan has gone on to write yet another book, which I think is one of the finest books written on the actual death, how to handle it, the dying process. It's called Final Journeys. Final Journeys, I think, came out last year. And and Maggie wrote that all by herself. Um, but Final Gifts and Final Journeys, these are outstanding books where it comes to understanding symbolic speech, um, understanding the, uh, the dying process and what it's like. Um, these are all excellent, excellent. And another one that um, maybe you, uh, as you die, did did I tell you about as you die a few days ago? Nope. When we were on before, um, as you die comes in both DVD and CD format, so you can either see it. Um, hear the audio presentation with pictures or, you, or just the audio either way as you die um, that is produced by a Catholic networking group by the name of Focus Videos so you can get it through www.focusvideos that's one word focusvideos.com or you can get it through me www.p M H at water dot com. P is in Paul, M is in Mary, H is in Howard, and then just at and then water. 
So it's www.pmhatwater.com. I I put this together, oh, gee, maybe about a decade, maybe several decades ago now. It's it's been tested with hundreds, maybe thousands of people by now. I don't know, know how many people. And this Catholic networking group decided that they wanted to actually produce it and get it out to more people. So in order to do that, you have to go through the scrutiny of the Catholic Church, and they have to investigate you and all this kind of stuff. And so they did an investigation on the presentation, the audio presentation, the material in it, how it's presented. And they found out that there is no other audio presentation like it on the planet, in no country, nowhere. And what As You Die does, it talks the dying person through physical death as they are physically dying. So it helps them to face and understand or know about each part of their body as it breaks down, what it is like, and then the last 15 minutes is um, the separation of the soul from the body. So they're, they're talked through the whole thing step by step. The beginning part is um, an introduction to the presentation and some information and exercises about what loved ones or friends can do. There are literal things that you can do, very simple, at the deathbed, um, instead of just sitting there or reading a magazine or sleeping or twiddling your fingers or you know looking off into space, there are things you can do like the awe breath, and and that's literally where you're breathing with the individual, and and you're helping them to steady themselves when you do that. So you invite the individual to take a breath as you do. So you're breathing in. And on the out breath, you simply say, ah. You just release that awe. It's called the awe breath, A-H, awe. So you're just letting that awe come out, and you're letting it trail. And if the person can't do the, uh, you know, if they can't breathe in and then vocalize the awe, then you can do it for them. And you just do it in this rhythmic pattern for a while, maybe five, ten minutes or whatever feels right. And and if they're able to do it with you, then on the awe breath, while they're releasing the awe, you can release for them. You, you can say out loud uh, with them uh, that you're releasing all negativity, you're releasing all fear, uh, all hesitation is gone. Maybe on the in-breath, you can have some affirmations, breathing in peace, breathing in love, breathing in joy, or, or whatever feels right to you. Um, so you, you, can, you can get this very simple breathing, um, rele- you know, breathing in, releasing out that, cycle that rhythm going and um, that experience of breathing with another person like that is one of the greatest gifts you can ever give anyone who is dying 
because you're literally part of their body. They're part of yours. And you are supporting their breath and their energy with yours. And and it's an incredible gift, far greater than talking to them. It's just to be able to share the awe breath. Well, that's um, the instructions on how to do that are in this presentation as well. Uh, but as you as you die came to be because a, a young man in New York City was dying of AIDS, and he he called me up on the phone. Um, he had heard about me, how to get a hold of me. I did not know him, but he knew of me. And he said that he had read all the books. He had taken uh, workshops with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Stephen Levine and all the leaders in the field of thanatology and death and dying. And he he was very disgusted. He says, none of them is telling me what I want to know. And I said, well, what, what do you want to know? He says, I want to know what it feels like to die. So I spent an hour talking about death and what it feels like to die, what death is. And um, at the end of that hour, he was so at peace. And I found out that he died a couple of months later, and he died very peacefully. I was guided in meditation to take what I gave to him in that hour and make a script and then do do that presentation and have it recorded. And I had it recorded a couple of times and experimented with it, that is to say did did field testing, to see how it would really work out in the field with various couples and families and hospice and so forth. And it, it, it was just better than I could even even imagine. What it seemed to do was that it helped people to die quicker and easier and in a, in a better mood, if, if, I, if I can put it that way. And I was very gratified by that. So... I began to sell them uh, strictly nonprofit. You know, I, n- I never have made a dime from that, and still don't. Neither does Focus Worldwide. They're nonprofit, um, and it, we do it as a service. And after uh, several years, I began to notice that families or loved ones were were buying this after the loved one had died. In other words, the loved one has died and, and gone, gone, you know, gone on. And maybe it's a year or two years later. And the family comes and buys As You Die and plays it or and or watches it if they get the DVD. And what what I found out from the from these people was that it helped them to work through their grief so much easier and faster. In other words, it helps a person die easier and quicker. It helps the families who are left with that grief to work through their grief faster and easier. There's just something about this presentation. And, um, you know, I, I look at that and I look at 
this, this this fellow who called me on the phone from New York City, who was dying of AIDS. He was in his twenties, and and how sad that was, but yet how purposeful it was, because by calling me and and getting the help he wanted and that he needed, so that he could die more peacefully, that session went on to have helped like I say hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many people. I have no way of knowing. And he was he was definitely grateful for um for that because that's what he was looking for is how to go ahead right. and right. and to go ahead and die. Right. And so what helped him then went on to help a lot of other people. And still does. So if anybody in your audience um, has had a loved one die recently, or maybe within the last year or two, and they're still dealing with it, or if somebody is in the death process now, you may want to get a hold of that, either the CD or the DVD, as you die. I'm going to definitely have to get a hold of that myself. And I think you might find it very helpful. Yes. It would certainly be useful in your particular work. Yes, and um, I've told people... And my experience, and even with my mom, when I knew it was, you know, I'd hold 24 hours before she died, I kept telling her, it's okay to go. I'm going to be okay. Because so many people tell them on their deathbed, it's like, oh, no, don't leave, don't leave, especially yeah. out of it. Yeah. And that is so important, John. Yes. And that's what I keep telling everyone to do. It's like, that's very important. It's, it's hard to do because you don't want to let them go, but you need to. You need to let them yeah. know that it's okay so then they'll feel comfortable and not uh, not fight to stay. This is crucial. This is absolutely crucial. I hope everybody is hearing that. And because when she finally did go, because you know the typical you know death experience, but she was on morphine to help her relax and all. And yeah. um, you know when she did finally go ahead and go, it was like an hour before then. Her eyes, you know, the, the white of her pupils showed, but right at the moment. She looked over at me and squeezed my hand, and her eyes were totally clear. Yeah. You almost always find this to be true, and I hope your audience is is noting this as well. Usually just before the person dies, sometimes several days before they die, they perk up and are completely normal or almost normal. It's like your loved one's back. They're getting well, everything's fine, and then they're, and then they're dead. So so they'll go through this death process, and then all of a sudden, everything clears up, and they're bright-eyed again, and they know everything again, and usually they can talk again, and that's when you know that death is like maybe 12, 24, you know, 32 hours yeah. away. You see, with her, it was um, that was uh, when she was coherent. Mm-hmm. It was only for like maybe thirty seconds. Yeah, for some she people closed her eyes, took her last breath, and that was it. Yeah. And it was just so peaceful. And yeah. even then, I kept telling her, "It's like it's okay, it's okay to go," because I know they can still hear you afterwards for a while. Oh, absolutely. the 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 ability to hear is the last faculty lost in in death, in dying. The ability to hear. We know that medically that a person can still hear after they have died. And how 
our doctors are able to ascertain that, I don't know. Um, but we can certainly tell that through after-death communication and, and near-death experiences. Um, we know that this is true, that they can still hear. Um, this is why the last 15 minutes of the audio presentation as you die is is geared to be played literally almost after the person has died and and the release of the soul. So they're listening to that um, principally after they have died, and they're still hearing that. The, um, we find this a lot in um, with the military or any kind of accident scene or, or where you have a lot of people dying or seem to be dying, and then maybe they'll revive or are resuscitated maybe a half an hour, an hour, a couple of hours later. And when these people come back, they'll be able to tell you what you were thinking and what you were saying when they died. And yeah, which, is, which is interesting. Yeah, and it's always right. I've never heard of one, one yet. Uh, I remember you had one in your book. You were talking about how they were able to hear everything that was going on um, in the ambulance and even outside the ambulance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's quite re remarkable what you can physically hear. And and when I say physically hear, I mean audibly. Um, it's as if, and again, you know, how, how do you explain this? But it's as if once you're out of your body, you have 360 degrees vision, and it's it's clear vision. You're able to hear, you're able to smell, you're able to feel. Uh, you have all of your faculties, only they are now hyper. They're working at speeds or at powers that they never worked when uh, they were in your body. When you're out of your body or your body is gone, your faculties increase and become hyper. They reach hyper states. Yeah, which is, I found that very interesting in the book when um, when you had mentioned that and everything, uh, even sight, hearing, mm -hmm. everything. everything is just uh, totally um, uh, heightened. Mm -hmm. I guess because you're you're part of the universal energies now. I would imagine that's why, or maybe it's because um, the faculties no longer have to go through dense form in order to function. They can now function more clearly because there's nothing blocking or slowing it down, the energy of that particular faculty. There's nothing there to slow it down. Like your eyes just kind of block your vision. I mean, you're only able to see... In, in certain ways when you're looking through your eyes. But when you're out of your body, you have 360-degree vision because there's nothing to block your eyes. There's nothing to block vision. And the same way with ears uh, and hearing. So all of your faculties then expand and enhance and become hyper because there's nothing to block them. But I'd, I'd like to get back to um, emphasizing again how important it is 
to let the loved one know that it's all right if they die. It's all right if they leave. And and I and I want your audience to know that even if they're not there, even if they're states apart, let's say the loved one is dying in Georgia and you're still in Michigan, you know, you haven't been able to get there or you can't get there, you can still talk to them via prayer. And and in your prayers to them or in your talks to them, let them know that it's okay to leave. Nine chances out of ten, they'll be able to hear you. Yeah. <clears throat> I just had somebody, because um, on Blog Talk Radio, where the radio show is, we also have a chat room. And I've got people asking if my for my mom if she ever came to visit afterwards. And I know even in your book that they, you know, you talk that spirits can come visit a oh, short sure. time after and let you know that they're around. Oh, well, get the book Hello from Heaven by the Guggenheims, by Judith Guggenheim and Bill Guggenheim. Uh, yeah, that book is, is filled with nothing but testimony of people, all kinds of people, all ages of people, um, uh, testifying that their loved one came back after they were dead, either with a manifestation, maybe a particular odor of a shave cream, maybe a voice, maybe a sound, um, you know, different ways that they come back, but they do come back. Yeah, mine came. My mom came back the following day, that Sunday. She died on a Saturday. That Sunday, I had to go to the funeral home and make final arrangements. And um, I had a five-disc CD changer. Uh-huh. And I know that they can mess with electronics. Yeah, they sure can. And I was like, <laughs> said, okay, I said, I want to hear this one song. And it wouldn't let me play it. I mean, it picked up the CD, spun it around, put it back down, picked up a different CD and started playing that one. And I was like, not what I wanted. I want this one. No matter what I kept doing, I kept going back to this one particular song and this one particular CD. I even moved them all around into different spots. I still kept going over there and picking up this one last one. I said, okay, Mom, definitely you want me to hear this song? I'm going to go ahead and let it play. And it was the old disco song of I Will Survive. Aww. And I let <laughs> it play, and I sat there and cried. And after that song was done and got done playing, I told her, I said, I love you. I said, I'll be fine now. I know you're, you're going to be okay. And then I went ahead and I said, let me see if I can play what I wanted to hear. And it played, and it's been almost um, nine years, and a CD player has never acted up again. Yeah, I, it's easy for a disincarnate to manipulate anything that's electronic or electric. That's very easy to do. Yeah, and it was, you know, when I tell people that, they're like, you're kidding, and it's like, no, and I had a no, couple of people there kidding. at the house who were witnesses to it, and they're like, no, he's not kidding, it happened. And yeah. then he said, okay, Mom, I'll listen to it, and after that, it, it worked fine. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's that's pretty typical. Yep. Yeah, so, that's the way they work. <laughs> and, you know, you just got to be aware of, you know, they'll let you know, and you've just got to be open-minded to it, because some people are, you know, aren't noticing Well, some the people get scared, thing. or yeah. maybe they're uh, frightened, or... Um, it, it's. I don't think it's a matter of belief and disbelief as much as it is a matter of comfort level and realizing that this is normal. If we could just know that this is typical and normal, then we, there wouldn't be fear. 
Yeah, and I think uh, with the work that you've done and with all the many books you've written, you know, that um, hopefully will be able to help a lot of people to be more comfortable with knowing what it's like when, you know, when they realize, like, well, you know, they're not dead. They just transitioned into, you know, into a different reality now. Yeah. Well, I, well, I think the book, We Live Forever, will help a lot in that line. And, of course, the, the audio presentation, As You Die, all of my uh, near-death books, books on my near-death findings. By the way, I'm working on my my tenth and last book on my near-death research. It won't be my last book, but my last book on near-death research. It's where I finally complete my theoretical model on brain shift, spirit shift. But I'm on, I'm on chapter 20 out of 26. So, you know, and all of a sudden Christmas is here and all that attends to that wonderful holiday time and... I just haven't been able to find time so is it lately. Gonna be, um, it's going to be bigger than uh, the big book of near-death experiences? Well, I don't know that it's going to be bigger. I, I hope it's not bigger. <laughs> <laughs> but well, it's not going to be small. <laughs> I got this the other, uh, yesterday, actually, is when I received that. Oh. And I'm trying to hurry up and skim through and read quickly, you know, because I like reading everything. Um, well, we'll, we'll talk about that next time, yeah. Yes. And I was like, I was like, oh my gosh! It's like I didn't realize, you know, all the um, information that's out there. That's the, the most up-to-date book on the near-death experience that, that exists in the world today. Yeah, and I've, it has all the latest stuff in it, and we can we can certainly talk about that oh yeah. next time. Yeah, and um, I know we're on your "We Live Forever" book. We're we're somewhat talking about uh, bits and pieces here. We talk also about. Um, Past lives. Yeah. And um, it's amazing how many children will remember past lives after after or during their near death experience. Yeah, and um, I had a couple of questions that maybe you if you've heard about this in your research or not. With the past lives, um, do they integrate into the one into you when you go ahead and do die? Well, that that's a peculiar question. Um, that's really, really peculiar. I'm, I'm not quite, excuse me, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm not quite sure quite how to answer that because what's important in the death process is releasing the soul. So the soul is, is leaving the body, is casting the body aside. It, it's, it's like the body is a jacket that you wear. And so at death, you cast off the jacket. So you are not your body. You're not male. You're not female. You don't have name, address, phone number, and social security number. Uh-uh. You are a soul. And the soul has a will of its own. Um, the soul is extremely powerful. I won't say necessarily that it's all-knowing, but it's, it seems like it is. It certainly knows a lot more than we do as a personality. And I, I truly feel that that's the purpose of spiritual growth and spirituality and prayer and, and meditation and spiritual disciplines is to, while you're still in the body, uh, blend more and merge more with your own soul. I think that's the purpose of what we call spiritual growth is where we are becoming uh, closer and merging with our soul. 
um, so that the soul isn't another entity, so to speak, that we and our soul are one. So when we're, when we're talking about the soul and the soul's will and how powerful the soul is, it doesn't look at things like we do. So if you're talking about the soul, it's not going to look at lives like we do. Um, it, it looks at lives as if they they follow a certain theme or or purpose, and and once the lives in that particular theme or purpose or or choosing are are lived and understood then the soul goes on to another theme or another cycle or another purpose and it just seems to pass those on by as as if they 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 simply meld into the soul and then the soul goes on so the the soul is, is um it seems as if our soul is always learning I don't know that that's a proper word to use, learning. It, it's like the soul is always in the process of expanding itself. It seems like that's how it grows, is is expanding in its own knowledge base, but also expanding in its ability to use that knowledge and be able to use it in a very concrete or purposeful way. So it's like a two-pronged approach. So what we get so fascinated with, with life after life, and the idea of reincarnation, is looked at very differently by the soul. Um, with the soul, nothing is ever linear. And, and, and it's really hard for us here on the earth plane to accept simultaneity, that that anything could be happening at the same time in the same space. But in fact, that seems to be the way it works. So when we're looking at reincarnation as being a linear life-after-life progression or degression, depending on whether we learn or whether we just goof off and blow it, um that speaks more to how we embodied in our body still in our body how we are able to understand ourselves as a human being how we can grow beyond that how we can understand ourselves as a spirit being how that comes to be and how we can understand ourselves as a soul and what that might be. So it's almost as if the whole thing is based on memory. And it's almost as if like reincarnation is an exercise or a way for us to collect memories. Because it's those memories that enable us to become more of ourselves. It's it's sort of like frosting on the cake, if you will, and it, it enables us to become more of ourselves. So you know, if, if you're going to play the embodied game, you know, 
you're John and I'm PMH and and I'm wearing a female body this time around and you're ma- wearing a male body this time around and you're of a certain age and I'm of a certain age and you're living in Florida and I'm living here in Virginia. Um, and, and and if we want to talk about our various urges and instincts and 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 memories that we have um, as an embodied being then we're going to look at things in a linear fashion. And we're going to see or remember or have a sense of where some of our behavior comes from and where some of our uh, patterning comes from. Uh, Like, for instance, I, I can give you a for instance with myself. I can remember very, very clearly having lived in England around uh, the London Bridge, in fact. And, I, and I'm well aware that the London Bridge is now here in the United States at Lake Havasaw in Nevada, but, you know, it, or Arizona. Uh, but it was once in London. <laughs> and, and, oh, I don't know whether it was the 1700s, 1800s, a long time ago. And I was a drunk. I was an old hag. I was on the streets. I drank myself to death. And... And I was married to a sea captain, and he was an alcoholic, too. We didn't have any kids, and I drank myself to death. And I was always heaving over the over the London Bridge. <laughs> I was on the bridge, and I was always heaving. I was always sick and finally died in a high fever, probably burned up my liver. But anyway, so in this lifetime, <laughs> I'm allergic to alcohol. I can't touch this stuff. From, or it'd uh, kill me. From your past, uh, from your past life. Yeah, I'm allergic to it, and and I was able to visit Lake Lake Havasaw, uh, and and walk across London Bridge, the, the real one. You, you know, yeah. there was reassembled there, and I could point out all the places where I threw up all the time. <laughs> And, and you know they've sanded, uh, sandblasted it, and everything, and you know it's relatively clear. But I went right to the places where I knew uh, I had spent the most time throwing up. So, so if you're looking at reincarnation in the sense of linear, and being able to maybe pinpoint some of the habits and behaviors that we have, and the way we are now, and maybe the things we need to make up for or uh, things we have to work out this time around to make up for what we did last time around, bear in mind that if you are at the core or nearly the core of existence itself and the core of creation and consciousness, at that level, there is no such thing as linear. That, that nothing is linear. You're talking about simultaneity. And this is one of the things that we find in near-death research, that very often the near-death experiencer will say, well, something to the effect of, well, I'll have to tell you this as if it were linear, but it wasn't. It all happened at the same time. And and they'll mumble and fumble all over themselves and be being able to explain this. And and if you're going to get into the concept of now, then there is no past, there is no future. If if you're going to look at at the four main words 
that most experiencers say when they come back from dying. And those those four words are, always there is life. Just four words, always there is life. And and uh, I can't say that that's it's the f- main four words with children, but I can certainly say that that's the main four words with adults. And if you really look at that, always there is life. Then, John, that means there's no such thing as an afterlife. There's no such thing as a before life. There's no such thing as a, as a this life. What it means is that always there is life. Always in some form, in some space, in some way, we are alive. We always have been and we always will be. That nobody lied to us when they talked about eternity. Nobody lied to us when they said we are immortal. We are. Always there is life. And some people in uh, in uh, the spirit, you know, spiritual community and psychics and all, uh, we come to realize uh, that what we're experiencing now has already happened. Yeah. And what's going to happen tomorrow and in the future is already taken place. We just haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's because the way our faculties are put together in our physical bodies, they can only register things in a linear fashion. They do that so that we can comprehend and and learn and understand and perceive. If things weren't linear, we would not be able to live on the earth plane or on any other plane that was physically uh, constructed um, that had any form of physicality. You have to, you have to have, you have to approach that in a linear fashion. You have to live through that and experience that in a linear fashion, and that's the only way that you can feed the soul's desire to fully understand what something is. So even though everything is truly simultaneous, we can only react to that and respond to that in a linear fashion. Um, and and I hope I'm I hope I'm making some kind of sense, but I'm trying to explain this in a way that at least you can get a glimpse of the whys and why fours. And so when you're talking about reincarnation, yes, that's a valid point. But it doesn't have the same meaning if you get to the real core of reincarnation and the real core of the of the soul. Okay. Speaking of the souls, because um, I remember you were talking in the book, too, about our core self is the soul. Yeah. Um some people would call you, it the higher self. Yeah, I would just you call also would you also consider that like you know when um, that little voice we keep hearing? Would you yeah, consider the, that the, to be like our soul? That little or, Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> yeah, that little one there where it's like, uh, no, don't do that, don't do this, and you know, leading us along the way. Because some people say that's that's your that's your higher self trying to guide you. 
Well, you can look at look at it that way, and you can call that your soul. You can also call it Holy Spirit. You can also call that your intuition. That very often, that voice that you hear is is your own intuition. This is trying to talk to you. Sometimes it's um, the situation itself that's trying to talk to you. Um, I'm one of these people that, for me, everything has life. Um, there's nothing that doesn't have life. So maybe the moment is talking to me. Maybe the air is talking to me. Maybe my car is talking to me. Um, maybe the, the situation itself and how it is constructed is talking to me. So I don't necessarily look at it as my higher self. I don't necessarily look at it as my guardian angel, although it could be. But rather, um, to me, it is this incredible world I exist in. And it's always speaking to me in some kind of voice, through some kind of form, in some kind of way. So the way I look at it is to be open to the breath that breathes me because it's always commun- it's always in communication it it's like in my house everything in my house can speak to me because i can hear it and if anything goes wrong in my house or if anything needs um care it will talk to me it will talk to me very clearly like my hot water heater you know or uh, the steps or any part of the house uh, wants to talk to me, or if it needs care, or if it needs help, it will let me know, and it will let me know how long it can go before I fix it. Whether it's months or years, or you know, it always lets me know how long I have before it, it, it's a it's a a critical situation, and and it, and it's never been wrong. Um, and, and my husband always kind of marvels at that because I'll know whatever needs fixing. And, and and I would not, you know, I'm not a contractor. And he said, well, how did you know? I said, well, it told me. It talked to me and it told me. And that's the way I am outside with my trees and, you know, our little bitty forest we have out and back and all the beings that that all the different energies that exist out there, whether it's animal or plant or insect or whatever, um, they all talk and and they all communicate. And I hear them. So for me, that that's intuition, that's openness, that's, that's being open to the world I live in. So you can call that soul if you want. You can call that higher self if you want. You can call it your intuition if you want. Some people call it a psychic ability. You know, I I don't relate too well to that, but you can call it that too if you want. Or you can simply be like me and say, I am open to that which breathes me. Very interesting gives you a lot of uh, food for thought, too, and a lot of um, tuning in, because nature all around us is always talking. Everything's except, talking. Except we're, we're um, almost deaf to it, because we don't want to hear anything. 
Your body is always talking to you. It'll let you know how it's doing. Yes. You know, if it needs some attention or if it wants to ball you out, it will. It's up to us to listen. Yeah, it's wonderful when the the other animals, the wild animals, um, communicate with you, too. Yeah. Yeah. We're always in communication with, with everything else that is. Now, that's part of the gift of our faculties, because we can turn it off, or we can turn it on, because you don't want to flood yourself with so much noise and chatter that that you don't know who to answer or you don't know how to live your life. You know, a lot of people wind up in mental institutions because they don't know how to... Um, uh, to handle this, but but it can be handled. You, you can discipline it. You can work with it. I, I learned to, to do this after I died. I didn't know that before I died, but I did after I died. And um, it, it's wonderful things that you can do. Like, for instance, uh, I'm living now in, in um, Charlottesville, Virginia. Actually, we're seven miles north of town uh, in kind of a, a wooded, semi-wooded area. And and I come from Idaho. I come from the reclaimed deserts of southern Idaho. And living in the east for me is an adventure, certainly, but for a long time it's very troublesome. It was very troublesome because I was used to 360 degrees of unobstructed vision. And out here you've got so many trees, it's like a green wall. And you can't see anything. My my favorite time of the year is in the winter when all the deciduous trees lose their leaves and I can see things, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I always want to see things. Well, anyway, we, we just moved into our little townhouse and out in back is this thick forest, you know. Out here you have a wall of forest. You've got vines and trees and bushes and all kinds of stuff and it's this big thick wall of greenery and it's beautiful but it you know, it kind of bothers a person like me. So I went out into the middle of our little forested area, and I, and I explained to everybody, you know, I introduced myself, where I'm from, explained everything, and I said, you know, I would really appreciate it, guys, if you would let allow me to clear the space between the trees so that I could have a little patch of Idaho forest. You know, none of the vines, none of the bushes. We just have trees. Um, and that's the way it is out in Idaho. <laughs> you might have some little bushes and stuff, but not like you have in Virginia. And so I, I hear this whole chorus, sort of like a musical chorus of, of different voices and different ways and kinds of voices. And they were all saying, yes, they would cooperate with me, that that would be perfectly fine if this one patch was an Idaho forest. So by hand, I I cleared it. I cleared all these vines and I cleared all these bushes and I did it for several years. And one time this this professional um, lawn care person was, you know, looking through the various places in our subdivision and and went out and back and, and noticed that I had this clear forest. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, 
did you do that? And I said, well, yeah, I just took my hands and I went out there and cleared everything. He says, you weren't wearing gloves? I said, no. Um, he said, you, you did this all by yourself? He said, did you have any problems? I said, no. And he says, ma'am, that was all solid poison oak. And it didn't bother you at all? Not at all. Because I asked permission first. You know, I think the secret is honor. And I honored this Virginia forest. And I honored it for what it was. And I said it was beautiful. And I honored all the different voices that were speaking to me. And I really, really loved them all. But I said, you know, guys, in order for me to be comfortable here, I have to be able to honor my memories and 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 my instincts and, and what enables me to be me. And that is, I've got to have some of home here. And home is Idaho. It is deserts. It is canyons. It is high mountains. You know, it, it's cactus. I've got to have some of that here. And 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 by honoring them and 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 getting acquainted and talking to them, they all agreed to help and it was only after they agreed. You know, only after permission was given that I then began to clear that forest. And I didn't have any problems at all. Um, nothing stayed in the ground. You know, the roots just came up really, really easy. Everything let go of its roots. It was, it was, it was, it was a pleasure to do it. I felt like I was engaged in active prayer. Because you asked for permission, and it was like, okay, you can do this. Yeah, but 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 it, but it wasn't flippant. It was like all the different voices of tears of voices and sounds that that were able to call out in their own timing in their own way, and it was almost like a song with all these like a chorus and so when they were all through and they had all given their permission, that's when I began to do the clearing. So we have this nice little Idaho forest right in, <laughs> out in back of our little townhouse. That's always nice. It gives you some place to go and relax, too. And yeah, I go out there and grab a tree. But you know that, that poison oak, I can I can put it right up to my face anywhere. won't bother me at all. Yeah, I'm the same way, too. I can go ahead and touch that, and everyone's like, what are you doing touching it? I said, what? It's not going to bother me. Yeah. You know, and I've been highly allergic to bees, I found out, since I was a child, and it's been 30-something years, and I haven't gotten stung by anything. Well, if you honor things, yes. the, the, you know, they'll repay your kindness. You know, the whole world wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be loved. Animals want to be loved. Insects want to be loved. Everything wants to be loved. The trees want to be loved. If you will honor uh, uh, life, life will honor you. Now, there are times when you have to fight, you have to struggle, maybe kill. Uh, and um, what, when that's appropriate, and, and I do feel the magic word is appropriate, when that is appropriate, 
then it has its usefulness. But when it's not appropriate, then that's that's when love prevails. And I, I think love prevails even the other way, too, because love can prevail in all kinds of situations. I've certainly found that out. In, in times of horror, in times of pain, in times of crisis, love's there too. We just maybe don't see it, we don't recognize it, we don't have time for it, or we deny it, but love is still there. Yeah, we just have to be um, open to looking for it. Yeah, and feeling it. So I know we've got only a about 12 minutes left. There's one other thing I want to um, touch on. Okay. Is what is death? A door we walk through. It's like an energy shift. That's all it is. Just an energy shift. Uh, it doesn't end life at all. Um, it, it's, it's like a portal. It's like an energy shift. Um, we enter the world on an in-breath. We leave the world on an out-breath, back and forth, motion and rest. And all of us are givers of gifts. We give the gift of our potential at birth, what we may become. We give the gift of our achievement at death, what we did with what we had. We are each givers of gifts. Um, all, all death does is, is, is shift the energy. It enables you to slough off um, old pieces of matter, slough off um, what you no longer need, and and shift. And that's what you do. It's an energy shift. And would you say that we're, what we're trying to do is our souls are evolving to try to um, get to the point where we merge back in with God? Well, certainly that's what Edgar Cayce spoke of, Edgar Cayce, the sleeping prophet, um, one of the most documented of all psychics in all of history. Uh, uh, I think the most documented was, was Rudolf Steiner. I, I, I would put him as number one. I would put Edgar Cayce as number two. Um, and, of course, people talk about Opensky and all the rest of them, but to me those are the big shining lights. And they say that's what it's all about. Um, I would say that it is to become co-creators with the creator. So it's not just a matter of going back to the source, but it's it's in realizing that we are co-creators with the source. So, so like I, I would add that extra I've, step. What? It's almost like a terminology I've started coining. It's almost like we're evolving to de-evolve because we come from source and we're growing and evolving to the point that we go ahead and become one back with the source. Right, but who's to say that we that it ends there? Uh, I, I, you know, I've had a number of people say, you know, what's it all about? Sort of like the song, what's it all about, Alfie? Uh-huh. <laughs> And I love to quote from this this German mystic. I think he was from the 17th century. I'm I, I'm not even going to pretend that I can pronounce his name correctly. I call him Jean van Ruysbeck, but I don't know if that's really how you pronounce his name. 
And he was a, a great German mystic, again, I think of the 17th century. And his students, he was almost on his deathbed, and his students were coming to him and saying, you know, something like, great teacher, what, before you die, you know, what is the secret of life? What is it all about? And Van Roosbeck just smiled and said, God, in the depths of us, greets God who comes to us. It is God contemplating God. And to me, that says it all. Yeah, that's why I think maybe that's why we only use what ten percent of our brains. Some claim even less than that, yeah. but around that. Because mm-hmm. I think with the knowledge that the universe has out there, as to what the big picture is that we're all part of, when because we're so linear that we wouldn't be able to handle it. Yeah, which is the biggest joke in the world. Yeah, because it, <laughs> it would be. You know, I mean, our soul could probably handle it, but I'm not sure we could. <laughs> yeah, I don't think our minds would be able to handle that at all, because uh, and maybe no, that's why we only use so much, because, you know, it's almost like trying to figure out the Big Bang Theory and thinking, well, okay, if the universe is expanding, it's expanding into what? What's beyond the edges of the universe? Yeah, good question. And if you try thinking about it, it's like, gosh, it's like this can drive you insane. Yeah. Because yeah, we're still so stuck in, in the linear form here. Right. And even in speaking about our soul, there is no way that our soul, my soul, your soul, anybody else's soul, could fill your body. It's not possible. If it did, it'd burn it up. Our souls are so powerful that, that it, 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 it is a stretch of the imagination to even imagine how powerful our soul is and how much it knows. Well, that's why then people um, who have had near-death experiences feel like they're being uh, shoved back inside of a small Yeah, small <laughs> I was one of those. Boy, that's for sure. Yeah, pulled back into this body, back to my toes. <laughs> and and the, the feeling being of, of having to shrink to fit back into the body because you're bigger out of the body than you are in the body. So if you're coming back into your body, you have shrink to fit it. Yeah, I'd be kind of, I don't know if I'd want to come back then. I'd be like, no, this is too confining. It is very confining. Um, But it's also very interesting. Of course, I'm one of these highly curious people. And uh, no, I didn't want to come back in, but I found the whole a whole process process very curious. Well, I know I'm looking forward to um, Thursday when we get to talk about the big book of near death experience. Oh yeah. So hopefully by yeah. then I'll have most of it finished reading. <laughs> well, I think you're going to enjoy it. Yeah. I really do. I've definitely enjoyed. We live forever. And uh, my other half is like, when can I read them? I said, as soon as I'm done interviewing her about these books. I said, then you can go ahead and read them. Not until then. It's like I got little post-it notes everywhere and all, with little notes that I'm jotting down and you know, to see if we can cover certain bases and all. And so it's like going and sort of reading uh, the big book of near-death experiences. And um, everyone can get all your books off through your website, correct? 
correct, or they can get it from Amazon.com, or they can order it through any bookstore. But my website is www.pmhatwater.com, pmhatwater.com, and just get into the book section and and our little bookstore. Uh, there's a section on the homepage for the bookstore, and get in there, and you can certainly order anything. You can also order As You Die. You can also get As You Die through www.focusvideos.com. Uh, you can get it there as well. That's that Catholic networking group. You get on their website, and you're going to get all these different web uh, DVDs about miracles and you know the di- different things of, about Catholicism. And some of them are just really quite wonderful. Some of the stories and, and DVDs that they've been able to put together about miracles and about you know, different aspects of their religious life. Um, they're wonderful people to work with, and I have enjoyed being with them very much. It's 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 the former Archbishop Philip Hannon. Uh, I say former because he is retired. He's in his 90s now. Uh, he was the Archbishop of New Orleans, and he was the man who officiated at the death of John F. Kennedy. And he's the man who buried John F. Kennedy. That is to say, the religious figure. He was the uh, Kennedy's um, archbishop. So he's the head of Focus Videos. And, um, you know, even in his 90s, he wakes up every morning, goes to work, puts in a full day of work. Ah, God bless him. Yeah. Incredible man. No time no time to take a break or anything. Just got to keep right on working. Well... He loves it. He loves people. He he's one of the you know the good Catholic fathers <laughs> who, who didn't mess around with anything but his faith, yeah. and uh, and just helped thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. That's why I like doing the radio shows and uh, and I like being you know working with um, people to communicate with those who have crossed over. Um, being a medium, and um, I also do tarot card readings and all, and I also work with Reiki oh. healing. So, you know, I, I enjoy doing that and helping out a lot of people, and even when I'm not feeling, it's like, nah, I want a day off, something always comes up where somebody's coming to me for some help. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Talk, even if it's just a talk, and it's like, yep, I'm going to keep doing this until the day I'm ready to shift into a different dimension. <laughs> Well, sometimes it might be a plant or an animal who wants to talk or some part of your house that wants to talk to you or maybe your car. So, you know, you're sort of on call. I, I'm I'm a prayer chaplain, and it's, so I'm on call, I, I consider, all, all, the, all the time in the sense of whether it's a disincarnate or whether it's um, somebody who's embodied. I'm on call. I, I also give readings. Um, uh, rune castings, no, I don't use Futhark, no, I don't use Oracle runes. I use the really old and I think the 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 far better casting runes, Scottish runes. And yeah, this has been a wonderful evening. Yes, it has been. I, it's been so wonderful talking to you. I'm looking forward to Thursday night already. Yes, already. And yes. I see you then. <laughs> yes, we'll see you then, dear. Thank you so much. Thank you, and goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye, dear.
I know we've got um, about a minute left. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. If you've tuned in late and you missed most of the show, go ahead and grab it on archive. It's been a wonderful evening uh, talking to her. We were talking tonight about her book, We Live Forever, which is available on her website, pmhatwater.com. Thursday night, we're going to be talking about the big book of near-death experiences. It's got over 400 pages. I just got it yesterday. So let me know. I'm going to be very busy reading, and it's been a fascinating time talking to her and all. And I hope you all tune in on Thursday night. Now, don't forget, I'm here tomorrow night also. So tune in tomorrow night, and we're going to be talking. um, I'll continue the subject of near-death experiences and death and dying and all, and we'll take some calls and all. But then uh, Thursday night, we're going ahead, and she'll be our guest again for another. I was, I was blessed when she said she can do it two nights for me. I said, wonderful. So until tomorrow night, everybody, have fun, play safe, and don't name it after me. Love and light to each and every one of you. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.